Y Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zweig Group team looks forward to welcoming you. You're listening to a special edition Zweig Letter podcast, putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting guru Mark Zweig and his team of experts straight talk in your ear. Mark has more than 30 years of experience helping AEP and environmental firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver his invaluable management, industry, client, and HR advice directly to you, free of charge. The Zweig Letter and the Zweig Letter Podcasts let you develop professionally wherever you are. Hey, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. Our goal is to bring you some of the best and brightest minds that the AEC industry has to offer. Today, I think I found one of the brightest minds ever to make it on the show. I actually put a tie on just for this special occasion, <laughs> but, but but I am totally honored and pleased to welcome Mr. John Ozzie Nelson Jr. to the show. Ozzie, as he is known in most circles, is chairman and CEO of Nelson. Nelson is an almost 40-year-old global architecture design and consulting services firm with a network of teammates in 35 different locations. Nelson provides strategic and innovative solutions that impact the environments of their clients across the street and around the world. So, uh, Ozzy, it's great to have you join us on this Wide Letter interview series. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and Nelson beyond what I just shared a second ago? Well, I, first of all, thank you very much, Randy. I, uh, I hope to live up to half of that introduction. So, uh, very, very kind of you. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, well, well, uh, we have been a fast-growing firm. Um, as you said, we are uh, global in nature, design, architecture, um, consulting, and then uh, have a under our umbrella have a an affiliate uh, engineering firm by the name of Rinjack. So, um, uh, I think what's uh, interesting about our story is not only the growth, uh, but as I say to people, um, I'd love to say that. I thought I sat in the ivory tower and came up some, from some grand vision, but um, we really, I think what we've done well is read and res- and respond to the market. Um, I often say to people that um, want to give some kind of accolades for being an entrepreneur that uh, uh, what really people don't see is the black bear that's chasing me, which is uh, market change. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, and I think we have stayed ahead of that bear. So anyhow, I look forward to our conversation. Okay. Well, great, great. Well, so, I mean, obviously, there are a million different directions that I could go in, and you, you've you've cut your teeth in a number of different ways in the design space. And I think, you know, a couple of the the narratives I, I'd certainly like to discuss. One is that the first is that you're a second generation to run the company. Your dad started the company. That and, is correct. And, and and so so, what made you graduate from college and come back home and join your dad's firm? 
Uh, again, a lot of opportunity. There's a lack of other jobs. But uh, the reality was, uh, I, you know, what I saw in the beginning um, and, and really uh, came to feel wasn't there and then was kind of reengaged um, when corporate outsourcing started was I, I, you know, I have a business degree. I'm one of the uh, I don't know if I'm one of the few. I used to be one of the few uh, CEOs of a design and architectural firm that came from a business background as opposed to a design or architectural background. But um, so I joined the my father's 14 person business with the idea that I could create a larger business and create some scale. And I guess uh, a, a couple of years into that, it seemed like the craziest thing I had ever done. Here I was in this boutique creative uh, environment. And um, just as I really started to think it was not a good fit uh, was when we had the opportunity to do an outsource for Cigna Insurance Mm -hmm. in which Cigna uh, found a partner in us and um, went, you know, outsourced 20 people. We became their ongoing partner. And then for the next, uh, I guess, decade would really change the business from what I said was kind of a retail business to a wholesale business. Okay. In that we were, you know, we were we were handling batches of projects as part of a relationship as opposed to chasing one offs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that is interesting about joining my father's firm as opposed to uh, any other firm is he had come into the industry after working in a dealership for 15 years. So not only did he have a good idea, a very good design sense, he really had a good sense for service and quality and relationship, which I think is a hallmark that we still continue today. Okay. Okay. And, and so, uh, so Cigna was your first foray into outsourcing, um, your, your services for the most part. Tell me a little bit about how the other designers in your dad's firm welcomed you in. Was it, was it acrimonious? Was it, was it welcoming with open arms? Cause I know that a lot of, a lot of times that, um, you know, architects and engineers can bite if you're not part of their plan, <laughs> if you will. And, and you know what I'm talking about. And and so there there's there seems to be that, you know, not that you're an anomaly in in the design space, because there are others that are leading businesses that have a pure business background and not a pure design background. But tell me what that was like. Um, you know, I I, I would kind of jump forward to today. I feel like uh, very honestly, it's just in the last maybe five years uh, that um, not only our firm, but the world kind of gets what uh, I have I, been trying to do. And uh, all along, I believed that uh, by building relationships along a broad range of service was the way to really capture both high end design work as well as the day to day work and that we shouldn't differentiate from that. Um, I think that uh, through my career, there's been this uh, very um, fierce debate about if you do anything but the high end work, um, your brand will be somehow uh, degraded and you'll never be able to get those high end projects. So it is very rewarding to me. And and it has been a really bumpy part of my career of people who felt like um, I didn't have an appreciation for the creative side. I wasn't ultimately trying to build a great design firm. Um, I was just, you know, trying to trying to trying to make it a, a business that had nothing to do with creativity. OK. All right. And so now I know that in the 80s, your dad really is actually a, a very successful interior designer. Right. And, and he, he won a ton of awards uh, for interior design and lighting. Uh, and then 
then I guess something happened. And this was about the time that you came on board, that, that the company saw a shift taking place and how firms were being engaged uh, to outsource services. Do you want to, first of all, just kind of describe uh, the services that you're talking about and then sure. what led you guys to develop and create your integrated services and solutions model? Sure. So, um, you know, I, I often tell the story that I think uh, before outsourcing, the idea was sort of that whether it was the design firm or the engineering firm, you know, they were treated as though they had some sort of disease and there was sort of some middleman that needed to be between the end user client and the and the person on the outside. Right. And um, I think in the in the outsourcing for firms that took advantage of it, it did require that you develop beyond just your core skill of design or engineering and that you really um, were self-policing in terms of uh, having dialogue about outcomes, really being much more aggressive in managing budget. Um, and I and I do think, uh, quite frankly, the uh, the inability of design, architecture, and engineering firms to be able to uh, largely develop in that side really gave birth to the CBRE and JLLs who have now stepped in to be the outsourced intermediary, if you will. Mm-hmm. And for us, uh, I think the other thing is kind of interesting. I, a lot of this. Um, I, you know, again, I would love to say that uh, there was this this brilliant strategy. I, I think what we uh, in navigating the market, I think we created kind of a series of blue ocean strategies, even though at the time I, I didn't really appreciate that that's what we were doing. So the break break for us was we started to do uh, outsourcing services and we had a client in Maryland come to us and ask that we develop uh, a, a, the, what I think is the first occupancy database ever developed. Okay. And then, okay. And then that bank was to, was acquired by Nations Bank, which became Bank of America. So for 10 years, uh, really, our gig, my gig was wait till Labor Day. Bank of America would buy somebody. Um, we would get a call and we would go into whatever market, whether it was Barnett in Florida or Fleet in, in Boston, we would look at all of the space that they had acquired. We would develop a post-occupancy uh, merger integration plan that would look to get the, the real estate synergies. Um, and then they would say to us, well, now you know the space better than us. We'll give you half of the integration, if you will. So we were growing our design business both um, uh, geographically as well as our relationship with the bank and a couple of other banks. Um, and that all of that was prior to strategic sourcing coming into the equation and that was really kind of the next change for us. But probably a good decade of, of our um, of our history was really this occupancy planning and then integrating the resulting projects that came out of that. OK. All right. So so it, it, I guess it probably one one project led to another, led to another and led to another, essentially. Yeah, especially since we were the only firm that I know of that was doing this. So um, why do you, why do you think you didn't have any competition? I mean, nobody nobody else stepped up to the plate or figured it out, or I, you know, I think that's where um, again m- m- the odd circumstances of somebody with a business degree in mind coming into what is really a creative and sort of boutique industry, um, and the, and the whole key to that was we were able to download the uh, accounting hierarchy of the banks mm-hmm. and translate that hierarchy into space. So if you think of, um, you know, that, that's really kind of an accounting and business drill more than as a design drill, although it resulted in design projects. Mm-hmm. I don't think at that time there were many people in the industry that, that were thinking that way. Wow. Okay. And that's, that's, that's amazing. So 
Is it, is it safe to say that because your firm was involved in the consulting and designing of new spaces for large corporate client mergers that you guys were bitten by the M&A bug? Do you think because of everything that you saw? I mean, you mentioned Bank of America. I remember Nations Bank. Um, I, I lived in Boston, so I remember Fleet Bank. And, you know, every day you turn up and there's something new. And then before you know it, all these Bank of Americas just popped up everywhere. And um, so so it's it almost seems like you took... The, you took an idea that your clients were utilizing to grow and to develop, and you just said, hey, you know what? Well, if they're doing it, we should just do it too. I, you know, I, I think two folds to that. Absolutely, that's true. And the fact that we were helping them in the, on the integration side and seeing what all those steps were to integrating and seeing what market penetration they were getting overnight absolutely spawned the idea. I think the other piece was I mentioned strategic sourcing and what was happening with strategic sourcing was, you know, we had this great gig, this great blue ocean strategy, and then the strategic sourcing guys started to come in, number one. And number two, the heads of corporate real estate who had typically been there for, you know, 15 to 20 years, now we're rotating like every two or three years. And they weren't coming from a real estate background. They were coming from an HR background. They were coming from an administrative background. So there was constantly this uh, new uh, dog and pony show to the strategic sourcing people and the real estate people. And we would consistently get two questions. Um, we were number 38 in the industry. And uh, typically we were teamed with Gensler and they'd say, well, you're 38 and they're number one. Shouldn't we be talking to 37 other firms in between you guys? And then the other question was, where are your dots on the map? We want to, we want fewer partners with more presences. Um, so it was very clear that we needed both scale and a platform if we were going to survive. So that's when um, we I came up with a fairly uh, innovative non-cash strategy, largely because I had no cash uh, to approach <laughs> other uh, small firms. And we were at that time about 12 million and we started approaching two to three million dollar firms to find ways to integrate them into our network. Um, and so in the years between 2003 and 2007, we went from 12 million to 53 million wow. uh, with through 13 merger acquisitions every year. And that was how much again? Uh, it was from, tw- from 12 million to 53 million. Wow. Okay. How did you handle all that growth? I mean, that's, that's five years. And, you know, um, it's, it's kind of interesting that um, uh, while today um, I would say to you that culture trumps everything. Um, I, I, I think that uh, one of the things that we've, we've done, um, different than many companies is the lens through which we look at, at risk. So if you look at my number one risk driver at that time was not growing fast enough. Okay. It wasn't a lack of culture. It wasn't, you know, anything else. So, um, you know, candidly, we looked for firms that had, um, a history of holding on to their clients. Um, and a strong history in corporate interiors. And those two tenants really drove this quick integration. Um, I used to say to people, people would say to me, you know, this firm doesn't look anything like that firm. And my point was that we were building track and someday we would come back and put trains on the track. But right now we are just laying track, Um, which if that, if, if you're able to really look at your objectives, that simply you can move very quickly. Okay. All right. So did you did you guys create anything proprietary for yourselves to be able to judge and determine these potential acquisitions or mergers in an expedited manner at all? 
Um, no, I would, you know, I was probably, uh, probably throughout our history since then, about 50% of my time is M&A. Okay. So I'm kind of the front guy, um, you know, kind of getting off the plane and uh, having that first meeting to see, you know, high level culture goals is, you know, is this, is this a marriage? Um, uh, I think what we do do really well is we, we have developed over the years, uh, we have a merger playbook. Uh, we have an integration team. So from the time that we get an LOI uh, with an organization, we do have a pretty uh, methodical way that we go through that process. Okay. All right. Well, and I'm just curious because I know I, you know, I always talk with Mark Zweig about uh, M&A and uh, it's something that interests me. It's not an area that I've worked in a lot. Uh, we spent time, obviously we do that here at Zweig Group and um, I've been involved in some research on the mergers and acquisition side, but I'm always curious to know, you know, what's been like the quickest deal that you've ever put together? And I'm just curious as to why it was done so fast. Mm, that's very interesting. I think uh, I would I would probably look to some of the earlier ones. Um, so uh, Bank of America after uh, 9-11, uh, we were doing a lot of the work in New York for the bank and um, 9-11 happened and there was obviously uh, they had space in the tower and, and they were going to be relocating very quickly. And I would say that uh, we established a partnership with a firm uh, and, and had the paperwork signed within, I don't know, I want to say three or four weeks. So okay. we had to move quickly, very immediately. Um, I would say that our deals today, um, you know, I actually have some that I have negotiated for years. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the Copelander uh, uh, merger that we just closed this week um, or last week, Ian Cope, he was tracking. I wasn't, but he said it was uh, 27 months that we were talking. Okay. Okay. Um, I would say that these days, probably the average time frame um, is somewhere between six to nine months from the initial conversation to the close. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. I always like to tell this story, but I mean, you know, whenever I talk with Mark about this, his biggest challenge for for leaders in the design space is that sometimes they're a little slow to act. And, um, you know, he always tells a story about Jerry Allen. This is a true story. But um, Jerry Allen, who was a mentor of Mark Swigs, um, one time Mark called him with a potential acquisition company. And I, I think, I guess by the end of that day, Jerry Allen was on a flight to go out and see that individual. And on the flight back, he called Mark and said, it's done. He had the paperwork <laughs> in hand and he had put it all together. And Mark was like, holy crap, you, you did not waste any time. And, and, and certainly, you know, I mean, yes, there are about, a lot of cowboys in Fort Worth, Texas, but Jerry Allen did not allow any grass to grow under his feet. And, and, and Mark always uses that illustration to say that if a deal looks good, you, you really need to seriously consider it and not, not uh, analyze, overanalyze it because you can, you know, you can get into that paralysis of analysis. Yeah. I, you know, I think that um, it, it's, first of all, I'm having so much fun um, with, with what I'm doing and what we're doing. Um, you know, I, there has been an evolution where, you know, in the beginning, as I said, it was a pretty linear process where I was looking for geography partners that um, had corporate interiors. If, you know, to some degree, you know, the first test was, can they fog a mirror? And then you got to go from there right, um, right. to today. We're doing so many. We have we have such a target rich environment 
that um, we, we want to make sure that we pick teams that have the right leadership. Um, and we, we want to make sure that no one deal is going to be disproportionate to where our time goes and that we don't get the accretive value out of it. So I think um, the, 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 the greater number that you're doing and the larger that you are, it is important to become selective. And yet, um, you know, I, I, I find myself bringing our integration and our leadership team in sooner and sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, my job is to be a chief deal maker and to continue to challenge what is the value of this firm? You know, are we sure we want to pass on this? And on the other hand, there are all these operating people who are ultimately going to have to own this and hit the goals. Um, and it's so it's, it's I think it's really important to create an environment where um, they can absolutely say to me, I you know think we should walk from this, hate this deal. And on the other hand, um, they can look at life through my lens of where they may see a value. Uh, I may see a value that they don't. But um, it really it's important that we have this rich dialogue around the deal. OK. All right. Well, obviously, communication is everything when it comes to these, because as you you and I both know that and I've heard this before from others in our office, that deals can break down because of lack of communication. And, no uh, question. And, yeah. you know, and I think um, right size egos is you know such an important part of it as well on yeah. both sides. Um, yeah. By the way, I, you were talking about Mark. I want to give Mark a, a plug here. I, you know, in the years of twenty. 15 to 16, we grew from uh, 40 million to 80 million. And um, the, the vast majority of the credit for that growth goes to, to Mark, who said to me, was talking to Mark about this deal that I was trying to get done in, in the Bay Area. And I was really frustrated that I'd lost, you know, 18 months trying to do deals in the Bay Area. And Mark said, you know, why don't you step back? He said, think about what you want to build in the end. And there's this, you know, it sounds like there's this geography diversity, there's this service diversity, and there's this market vertical diversity. And if you start to look at firms through those three lenses instead of the one of just pure geography, um, you might find more targets in the environment. And, you know, son of a gun, I mean, it's just the whole world open for us uh, by just using a different lens. And, uh, and that was that was uh, in, throughout you know, 30 years. That was some of the best advice that I ever got. So, okay. All right. Yeah. Mark has a, he has his way. I will say that uh, he convinced <laughs> me, to, he convinced me to come from Boston to Fayetteville, Arkansas. So he's, he clearly is, he, 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 he is skilled in more ways than one. So there is um, more knowledge under that funny hat than you would imagine. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, he, he'll be, he'll be excited to hear that. <laughs> Um, so, so, okay. So you became CEO of Nelson in 2003. You've just completed your, the 34th merger or or acquisition. And the most recent one was just completed just a few days ago. I I think it might've been June 1st, uh, 2017, uh, as of this recording, tell us about the significance of this last merger, um, just in particular. Yeah. So it actually, it was, it was two mergers that we announced, uh, one day, uh, one, uh, in two day increments, the so one on uh, one on the 31st, one on June. So the first was Copelinder, uh, which is a corn shell architectural firm out of Philadelphia. And the second was K.A., um, a corn shell architectural firm out of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, both are firms, uh, 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 Copelinder working in the mixed use hospitality office market, KA working in the office uh, mixed use and retail spaces. So 
a richness of things that we got from both of these deals. Number one, culturally, uh, just a home run in terms of uh, firms that I, I feel and leaders that I feel like we've worked with for a very long time. Um, but in both cases, very solid firms in terms of uh, a co-blender in terms of the technical and the creative um, KA, very, very strong in the technical side and understanding of retail, but really needed to be part of a broader network um, in order to better service their clients, um, really benefit from a lot of the focus that we have put on design. And finally, um, you know, we have for a long time aspired to get into larger scale architecture. Uh, Copelinder not only brings large scale, but they bring high rise. Uh, the first product project, major project that will be completed under the Nelson name is a 51 story W hotel in downtown Philadelphia. Wow. Um, yeah, which is really cool. And then KA has done very large malls, um, very large office structures. So it sets us up now with a core and shell and high rise uh, capability that we can service our clients across the country. Okay. All right. So now you're going to really be busy. So I, I'd, hate, <laughs> I'd, I'd hate to ask you what, what's next on uh, on the horizon for you guys. You, now, you, you did mention something to me earlier, and I don't know. And, and again, it, you'll have to excuse. I, if I don't know something, I always ask about it. But you mentioned a blue ocean strategy. Could you define sure. that? Sure. So um, there was a book a number of years ago. I wish, I wish I could think of the author right now, but the, but the book's Blue Ocean Strategies of Folks listening to this, Google it, they'll absolutely find it. But the, the premise was that um, if you look at where most competition happens, it's where uh, the sharks are all competing in the densely populated fish area. So the water becomes very red and very bloody. Um, and that if you step back, you want to go to parts of the uh, competitive landscape or the ocean, if you will, that's blue, where you may be able to, to provide service or sell your product in a less intense environment because you've kind of developed your own place that you're fishing, if you will. Yeah. So back to what we were doing is instead of selling design services, we were actually doing this occupancy planning, which then led to design services. So when we were winning projects that didn't even go out to bid, people couldn't figure out how we were getting the, the project. Right. Uh, so that would be a very different way. You know, I'd say today this whole uh, merger acquisition in a lot of ways at the, at the scale that we're doing it and in the niches that we're doing it. Um, I think a, a different way to go about building a large firm that's going to customize around the industry need. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. That that was a good piece of education there. And I'm, I, we will certainly add some of that on our, our show notes so people can go and, and look that up. But that's that's actually really helpful information. And, you know, I know there's a saying that you get rich with the niche. Um, and, and, uh, it, it really is true. Um, and with that said, I'd be curious to know what, what are your thoughts about some of the biggest challenges or threats that we face in the design industry as a whole? I know talent is a major issue. That's the area that I work in. That's my, that's my bailiwick, if you will. And, and dealing with recruitment strategies and, and just finding good people. They're just, I mean, we, we are dealing with a, not an infinite, but a finite set of resources when it comes to good talent. And I'm assuming that that's even a challenge for you guys, but what do you see as the biggest threats right now for our industry? Uh, I, th I think that's, um, I, you know, the thing I'd say about talent, it's not only attracting talent. Um, I would say that we live in a very transparent and more transparent world than we have ever lived in. Yeah. So the idea that um, you're either going to quote unquote, attract people to an organization 
um, that isn't, um, uh, you know, isn't progressive and isn't everything uh, that people would like to work in. Um, and that's very challenging. Um, I, I also think that, um, you know, that we, a lot has been written about the differences of the generations and um, really look really genuinely creating a workplace around what the various generations are looking for. You know, for instance, millennials are not only looking for flexibility, um, they're looking for a sense of family and a sense of better place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could, you know, whatever it is, give free food and coffee and all the other stuff all day long. But if you don't have this environment where people get together socially after work and that you create this environment of extended family, you're going to have a chance. You may get people in the door, but you'll have a hard time keeping them. Keeping them, yeah. Um, I think another uh, – a lot of – so post-downturn, um, what our strategy really pivoted from this idea of the, what the previous Blue Ocean was, which was a lot of the occupancy strategy, and we found a lot of competitors coming into that workplace – so what we decided was that we were going to diversify along geography and vertical and service lines, again, along the lines of the conversation with Mark. Um, you know, n- n- you know, nobody knows when some uh, uh, you know, new virus is going to break out that's going to affect some part of the world right. or when we're going to go to war with some country or when we're going to have another economic downturn. So the inability to really predict the future necessitates, I think, that we're diversified around a lot of counter cyclical industries. So if you think of, you know, one of the investments that we'll make this year is actually into K through 12 in California, um, something I would have not thought of doing five years ago. But if you think about the fact that the bonds now are fully funded in California and will be funded for the next 10 years, no matter what happens to the economy, the bonds will keep flowing. Right. So we continue to look at the world in that in that very high risk, unpredictable way. And I for me, I think that that and the and the people side that you talked about are the are the are the two probably biggest challenges. Okay. All right. Well that that I mean, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And I, I'm diversification is key, I think, for any healthy business is to not just have one cookie jar to keep your hands in, but you gotta have multiple. So uh, we all like choices, I think. And then and then the and then the final thing I would add to that is not only the the unpredictability, but the rate of change. So I think that not only do you need to look at this diversification strategy, um, the unfortunate news for leaders and CEOs who want to be done is we're never done. So, you know, once you do get to the top three of a vertical, um, you're now not only a leader, you're a target. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. You have to continue to reinvent yourself to stay in that leadership spot. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Well, no, I, I appreciate that. That's that is some good, that's some good advice and feedback. I think some there's some young owners out there of design firms that are gonna it's gonna be really helpful for them. I um, I've actually had a couple of other people on the show that have talked specifically about M and A and their kind of strategies, and it's interesting to hear from some different people. I don't know if you know Tony Tony Mershandani from RTM. Yes. And there's some, yes, and there's some other people, and Tony pretty much does all of his M and A work internally, uh, uh, similar to how you guys operate, and, and they've had some success. And so it's interesting to see how different people are doing different things, but obviously you've kind of set the standard for what that looks like. So I, I certainly applaud you. And, and with all that, with everything that, that Ozzie Nelson is doing, you are a trustee and two-time board chair of Students Today, Leaders Forever. 
which is a nonprofit organization um, recognized by Time Magazine as one of the top 10 ways to give back. Um, you, you've chaired the Young Presidents Organization of the Twin Cities chapter. I mean, I could go on and on. And I know a lot of times we like to focus on the business exploits of individuals, but you have found time in your busy schedule to give back. And can, can you just talk just a little bit about, about that and, and about the importance of it, right? Because it's not about how many uh, mergers or acquisition, acquisitions you, you can do at the end of the day, but certainly I think a, a legacy is also important beyond the business exploits of the world. And I, I would just be curious just to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I would um, uh, I, I would say that uh, particularly over the last two to three years for me, um, there's been a there's been, you know, I've always been uh, an, an aggressive entrepreneur. Um, I, I would say a lot of that involvement and even in terms of um, the personal satisfaction I take out of what we're doing as a firm um, has to do for me personally uh, around core um, uh, core attributes and qualities of, of humility and connection with other people. And, um, I, you know, I, I found that um, particularly when you do start to get some of the traction in areas that you have long wanted to, um, those can pretty quickly become empty. Um if there isn't a purpose behind that, that really has a tangible impact for people. So um, both in terms of what I do in the community, um, but just as importantly, the opportunities that I'm blessed to steward here at Nelson um, uh, are really the things that get me up in the morning and um, the things that make me feel like what I'm doing is a lot more important than kind of dollars and cents. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I certainly applaud you and I just, Personally, thank you for setting that kind of example, because I think other people need to see that it's, you know, con you know, getting up every morning and going out and conquering things and, and gathering things is important. But but also uh, sewing into others is, is, is equally as important, if not more so. Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, who you who you conjure up as the next Ozzie Nelson, somebody that you've spoken into their lives and they'll end up doing the same thing and giving back the same way. So I applaud you and I say thank you very much for that. So. Thank you, Randy. Yeah, no problem. So listen, we're, we're going to finish this up. We're doing something new here on the uh, TZL interview series. We want to go a little deeper for our audience and learn, <laughs> not, not that we haven't already dissected you just a little bit, but that was on the business side. We want to learn who the real Ozzie Nelson is. Uh, we have a couple of simple questions that we'll uh, end our interview with, and hopefully we'll have some fun in the process. That's so awesome. The first question was, what was the last book that you read? Uh, oh, that's interesting. Um, it was um, uh, well. The first, the, the last, the, the last general book I read was uh, a, a reflection of Mother Teresa's life. I, that sounds corny, but it, it looked it looked interesting. Um, and then the other one, I can't think of it. I was just talking to somebody about it the other day. It's the uh, something of Wichita. It's the Koch brothers um, story, and uh, was a fascinating read um, about the kind of the, the, the wars that went on between the Coke brothers and the, and the building of Coke industries. Coke industries. Yeah. Right there in Kansas. That's right next yes. to us here in Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, you, too, so. you know it well. I do know it well. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So actually I know some people that work for the Coke industries and Coke family and, and I've never talked to someone that works for them that hasn't said they're really well taken care of. The, those guys actually run a pretty sharp operation. So yeah, I'm in, I'm in the middle of uh, option uh, B, which is that uh, Sandra uh, uh, Sandberg, I think it is, she's the 
COO of Facebook and her husband's right. the one right yeah. on treadmill. Yeah, and, uh, very very inspirational book. Yeah, she's sharp. She's sharp too. I I really like Sheryl Sandberg. So she's sharp. Okay, so you got some good books on the shelf. Um, if if where did you go on your last vacation? Uh, we went to Jamaica uh, as okay. a family. Okay. Yeah, where, it was my where, wife, my wife, and my son, and I have a so I have a an unusual uh, family split. I have a, a tw- all with the same wife. I have a twenty a daughter that'll be twenty six next week. I have a twenty one year old daughter and then a fourteen year old son. So okay. Uh, okay. I still have a little guy at home. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Well, awesome. So yeah, Jamaica is a lot of fun. So. It is. And, and the food is good down there. If you like and the, the people spicy. are, we just love the people. Yeah. They're very friendly, very friendly. Um, now, so given that, you know, with the family and all at home, if, if you personally could binge watch one TV series, old or new, what would it be? Oh, uh, this is us. In fact, my wife and I did binge watch that. We, we missed the, we didn't see the first, uh, season. And I think over like two weekends, we watched the, we watched whole, the whole thing. Oh my gosh. It's a very <laughs> powerful, very powerful. It's, it it is very powerful. The thing I love about it is that they wrote into the storyline arc um, that you know the guy is um, uh, is, is a big Steeler fan because it takes yeah. place in Pittsburgh. Yes. So yes, I, and all my family's from Pittsburgh, so that was that was near and dear to my heart. So I enjoyed oh, that's, that. Well, that's that, yeah. that series where I think he proposes to her right exactly. at the Super Bowl. Yeah, Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So it's an amazing story because you're 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 either in one period of time or another and you, you got to kind of figure it out but it's it's very very powerful i mean the writers for that are, are are amazing they absolutely are so you know i i a couple of times i looked over to my wife and she was actually crying and uh, yes. you know, i just i just just let it go yes. so yeah so and you know before before that it was modern family we were we were oh, like okay. we okay. were glued to modern family so. yeah yeah you got like the, the shows that have the best writing is kind of what I gravitate to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah, that, that, there are some really good shows like that. Um, so Ozzy, I, I, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. It's a, it's sure, a really. afternoon that you, you, we finally got this together. I've been, I really wanted to, to do this and, and I appreciate you just obliging me and obliging us here on the Zweig Letter uh, interview series. We really, really appreciate it. Not at all. I, it was my great pleasure. And, uh, have had have had and have so much respect for your organization. So it's really my great pleasure. Oh, that's awesome. Now, now, will will you be coming out to join us at Hot Firm at all? In, uh, uh, I, in I September. Am, I, I am trying to get there. Yes, okay. I am. I am tentatively planning to be there. Okay. All right. I know because I know you came and spoke at one of our events, and, and I did. Uh, and I was yeah. supposed to be there last year, and I think I had a. I forget what the conflict Something was, but come I, up. I, yeah, yeah. It's a not only is it a great time, it's a great networking time, and. Uh, <clears throat> for those in the in the audience, uh, absolutely always get a lot out of it whenever I'm there. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, good. Well, I certainly hope our paths cross again soon, and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Folks, I want to encourage you today to get a free subscription of Civil Plus Structural Engineer Magazine. And to sweeten the pot, we are throwing in a couple of issues of the Zweig Letter, too. Um, just out of curiosity, Ozzy, do you read the Zweig Letter at all? I do read the Zweig Letter. Okay. All right. Do you know or are you aware that we have a new program now where we're offering the Zweig Letter uh, to whole companies where they can, everybody that has an email address gets a free copy of the Zweig Letter. Are you familiar with that? I, I was not familiar with that. Okay. All right. We'll have to talk with you about that yes. offline. But um, for all of you that are listening to this, just visit free tzl.zweiggroup.com and leave us your email address. We'll take care of the rest. 
Everything will be delivered to you electronically. As a reminder, all Zwei Group media programs like this one are available in both podcast and in some occasions video format free for download on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube, just to name a few places. A link to all this information, including contact information for our guests, will be in our show notes. And we'd love it if you'd go to iTunes or wherever you tune into this show and give us a five-star rating and share this link with a friend. Sharing is caring. I'm Randy Wilburn, and you've been listening to Zwei Group Media, part of Zwei Group. Remember, we exist to make you more successful. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning in to this special edition Zweig Letter Podcast. We hope that you can apply Mark's no-holds-barred advice to your daily professional life. For a free copy of the Zweig Letter, please visit info.zweiggroup.com slash free TZL. If you want more wisdom and inspiration, in addition to information about finance, HR, and marketing your firm, start reading and sharing the Zweig Letter today.